children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. Uh, if you'd open your Bible, uh, turn there uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will um, we'll be reading. Uh, I'm going to give you an extra second to find it because I usually preach out of this Bible and I'm having a hard time finding it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to read. I was going to say I'm going to give you a little bit of extra time to find it because you're going to get there and we're going to read and it's going to be over. First um, Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 30, Paul is summing up a large section of, of teaching where uh, he, is, he is talking about many things. He's talking about uh, temptation. He's talking about uh, what activities ought to be, part, what we ought to participate in, and some guidelines and principles. Uh, in the end, though, he defaults to the principle of the glory of God. And so this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now in trust and in faith to consider uh, the topic this morning of resources and of stewardship of those resources. When it comes to the idea of our joy, we believe in our culture, many of us, that joy is to be found in stuff. Joy is to be found in Things. Joy is to be found in recognition or the honor that comes from people. And so we confess that at times our resources can become a problem. Because we see here the motivation, the ultimate use of everything is in reference to you. That your glory Lord, is key. That is paramount in all that we do. We ought to see your glory as the center. If we have something to eat or something to drink, it ought to be used as a resource for your glory. And that in our enjoyment, we ought not to give offense to others, but instead to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ and to use all things that others might come to know you and to glorify you. Joy, Lord, is found in you. It's found in your presence. It's found from knowing truths about you and then living and experiencing those truths and experiencing you in truth. Joy is not found in Knowledge alone, although there is the thrill of discovery, joy is found in seeing that you are who we know from the Bible, that you follow through on your promises, that you are faithful to them. Lord, we may not 
find joy in money, even though we think we will, because you've not designed money that way. We may think that we will find joy in pleasure, but we will not find joy there because you've not designed pleasure that way. All of these things are tools to be used in the ultimate pursuit of knowing you, of making you known and experiencing you. And so we pray, Father, that that you would help us to lay hold of this truth. It stabs at the heart of the American dream. And so we pray that you would protect us, that you would help us to work out the tension. There are very few things that I can definitively apply this morning. And so I pray that you'd help each one to assess themselves and to tell you what their next step is as you speak to them. We pray for clarity and for conviction and for joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Right about when we started moving into this building, uh, a a small group of people started uh, saying things on Facebook or on Instagram. Uh, They were using uh, the the catchphrase, right, that's uh, speaking to the crowd that doesn't know uh, what that means. to the crowd that does know, the hashtag, right, uh, owning, not renting, showed up several times. Uh, the, the fact that we were moving from renting where we could say, oh, well, we have no control over that because we're just renting, right? If we owned, we'd take more uh, responsibility. We'd demonstrate more uh, stewardship or more authority. Well, uh, there, there came the one-year anniversary of being here and owning, not renting made another appearance and and we swelled in our pride of what God has done in our church in in bringing us here and then uh, in the middle of the summer we had a plumbing problem and as I was texting back and forth with people and saying we ought to do this somebody should do that several people responded owning not renting I will, uh, I won't say who they are out loud. You know who you are. And in my moment of leadership stress, trying to, uh, trying to be proactive or reactive rather and, uh, and, and settle the problem, you uh, hashtagged at me. Uh, you meant it in fun. And, and so I, I won't call you out much. Uh, there's a, there's a, a certain kind of deceit that takes place when you move from renting uh, to owning though. Uh, when, we, when we rent, we have no stake and no claim, right? And, and so we, uh, we, we, we pour resources or we pay for something which we're receiving, but we ultimately have no claim in it. We have no equity. The thing which we are paying for never becomes ours. When we own, we eventually build up the equity and the thing, the church, that we are paying the mortgage off on or the car that we're paying the payment for. Uh, And if you are from Zambia, it's the dowry, right, that you're paying so that you can satisfy the the father-in-law and legally, how strange is this, uh, take possession of your wife, 
that's the way their culture works. Um, you can talk to a couple of our team members who've been there about that, the emotions run high. Um, when you own, you take possession, but here, here's, here's the thing, this is just a trick of the way that we think about life in the world. The Bible says that the Lord owns everything. That, that the earth is his and the fullness thereof. Now, we don't rent from God. We own, in a sense, of responsibility. But there's a third category that we need to introduce here to, to accurately reflect the, the Christian view, and that's uh, the idea of stewardship. If you've been in church for any length of time, you know that the minute the, word, the pastor says the word stewardship, he's going to be talking about tithing at some point. And I'll say this, the, the piece on, on giving will be incredibly evident, uh, not the bulk of the sermon, and you know whatever level of conviction comes to you is, is probably more from the Holy Spirit than from me. Um, that was a joke. Um, anyway, it's true. Stewardship is when we are given something which we do not own and we hold it in trust. The resource is given to us and we have responsibility to maintain it. We have the authority over it. We direct it. We preserve it. We use it. And we will one day be called to account for what we did with it. We're to use it wisely. It's not to be piled up, locked up, locked away, set aside and never used. No, it's to be used with wisdom, to be preserved, to be cared for. We are stewards, not owners of everything. I believe that the whole of Life for the Christian is to view all that we have as a stewardship. And so my appeal this morning and my point is going to be simple. In the sense that you think you own the things that you have been given by God, I want to urge you to turn them over. To the sense in which you are abdicating responsibility or use of something that you have been given, I want to urge you to take it up. And then in those areas in your life where you are saying, yes, this is mine, in quotes, and I'm using it, I want to appeal to you to use it wisely. Turn it over, take it up, use it wisely. We are stewards of our family, of our moments, of our money of our relationships and of our opportunity. These are things which are given to us by God. You weren't given generic children or a generic spouse or generic parents. You were given specific ones. And you are to shepherd and lead and guide and help them, not some imaginary group that, that you thought of in your dreams. We've been given a certain number of moments in our life. The Bible says that the Lord numbers our days, and we are to take care and to use them wisely. Think about it. The Lord knows you do not how much money you are going to earn in your life. He knows. He's 
determined it. The number might be bigger than you think. It might be smaller than you think. But he's given you that resource, the ability to win that resource through the body, the intellect, whatever it is that he's given you that you use to earn. He's given it to you and he calls you to be a shepherd of that resource. The relationships that we've been given, people that we meet, even the person who hands you the coffee through the Dunkin' drive through window. Do we have a drive through down here? Starbucks? No. Starbucks doesn't care. <laughs> Dunkin' cares. Um, they, they, the, the, the people that we meet everywhere, the people that we brush up against and we encounter on a regular basis, God has given us those opportunities for a reason, and we're to care for them. Now, within the church, if we take a view of stewardship, we have teams. We have the finance team, which is responsible for the finances of the church that have been entrusted to them. We have a team that, that cares for our facility. The small group's ministry, as it launches, will be in charge of stewardship of community. The missions team cares for opportunities for mission. The elders are to make sure that the word is properly stewarded, that our vision is clear, and the whole church is to make sure and to take care that everything points to Jesus Christ. We're to care deeply about these things because it's been entrusted to us by God. The whole of life is given to us in trust. To the degree in which you own it yourself. I want to urge you this morning to turn it over to the Lord in his direction. In the sense in which there are areas in your life where you say, I'm just not in control and I don't care, or I've, you know, I've never thought about that before, or I need to address this area, I want to urge you to take it up. And then in all areas of life, I want to appeal to you to use it wisely. Stewardship ideas are sprinkled all throughout the New Testament and through the Bible. Here's an interesting one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, there's a question. There's actually three questions, but one that is relevant to what we're talking about. Paul says this, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Think about that. Job says, at, at, in his grief and mourning, he says, naked I came from the womb, and naked I will return. Everything in the, in, in, inter, in, in the interim has been given by God, whether it's been earned or it's been inherited or it's been passed to him. We're stewards of all that we've been given now, at this point, perhaps uh, some of you, you're feeling the pressure a little bit. Oh, my goodness, there are so many areas in my life that I do not have under control. Welcome uh, to the human race first. Welcome to the 21st century. You know, think about it. What would it, what would it have been like for Paul if he had email? What would the New Testament look like, you know, if it was just an endless stream of questions? Right? We're dealing with technology that other human beings haven't had to deal with. Think about it. Mobile phones were not in our pockets the way that they are now 15 years ago. Social media, 
It's crazy that, 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 that I, I got a message this morning from Dr. Margie in Zambia as I was uh, getting ready to come over here. She's like, hey, you know, let's talk about this project. You know, I'm like, you're across the world and we're talking to each other. It's just astounding and amazing to me. The amount of pressure that faces people, I think we feel that we want to do things perfectly. But here's the good news about stewardship. Stewardship is not about perfection. Stewardship at times involves questions where we say, I'm not sure if the thing to do is this or that, because there's no guarantee on how when I invest things will turn out. Well, this is where we need to use wisdom. And when wisdom's involved, the end is not perfection. The goal is not perfection. Because we're not sure how it will go. Look at what Paul says about stewardship in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, again, verse 2. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be not perfect, but faithful. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Let's go back to the truth and then talk about a few examples. The truth is this. This is the big truth. When the Lord is speaking to Job at the end of Job, this is the place, by the way. If you're going to ever dip into Job for evidence for some point, just be super careful because a large amount of the data that's spoken by people in Job is wrong or misguided. But if you're in chapter 41 or 42 when God is speaking to Job, you're, you're good. That's all true. Everything he says is right. Job is wrong sometimes. Job's friends are pretty much always wrong, but kind of right, you know. Uh, so just, just be careful. And the devil shows up there, and everything he says is wrong. So uh, even if it seems right, that's rule number one uh, for uh, stewardship of opportunities to talk to the devil. He's always wrong, and if he sounds right, he's lying. Um, You guys are not being good stewards of joke opportunities here. <laughs> That's because they're not funny, right? Job 41.11 says this. God says, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Right? Quid pro quo. I let you scan my phone. Thank you for, for the appreciation that you've shown me. I really did. I, 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 I feel it. I'm thankful. Many of you got me dunking cards. You know? And so I just hold out my phone and they like, shoot the laser at it, and then when they scan, they give me my coffee. And I don't say thank you for being so generous, right? Like I gave them money, your money. And, and then they give me coffee, which is now my coffee, right? And they sometimes, if they're super ultra smart and business savvy, they'll say thank you for choosing Duncan. You know, thank you for, for your continued, you know, uh, visits here. Because they know you can get coffee everywhere in Salisbury. Like, there's coffee all over the place. Who is first given to me that I should repay him, God says. Do I owe anybody anything? Is anybody, uh, am I in anyone's debt? The answer is no. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Think about it. Your body is constructed of matter that God created. He created Adam from the ground and Eve from him. And so every single human is constructed from borrowed material. And we eat food that is produced from animals. 
and plants, right? And they get their resources from the ground, from plants, which are fed by the light of the sun. Like everything is borrowed. And we just cover it up with our economy, right? You know, where we, we package everything. We're like Nabisco made these cookies. Well, they made the cookies, but they didn't make the stuff. It all borrowed from God. He makes everything. He owns everything. No one has given God anything or put him in, that he is not in their debt. We are all given an opportunity by him. And we're called to be faithful with that opportunity. When it comes to what we've been talking about, about joy, there, there are two large sections to this. The first one is that, is that joy depends on knowing God accurately and then living in a way that's consistent with that truth, to know him. And so we've talked about margin, clearing up time. We've talked about abiding in God's word. And then we've talked about knowing ourselves so that we can live in, in truth, so that we can know him and, and just be, to dwell in God. And then we've talked about specific areas related to doing where joy is found. And so we've talked about uh, engagement in a mission in life because purpose is important. We've talked about relationships as the context the final area that we need to talk about is how we use our treasure. One of the ways in which we challenge the idol of, of personal security in finance and we exalt trust is by giving away. Money is not something to be hoarded for security because security comes from God. Instead, money is a tool given to man to accomplish good. Money, it is often, uh, it's, uh, the, the Bible verse is often misquoted. People will say, well, money is the root of evil. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of evil. The desire to find security there or to obtain much is what causes people. Uh, I always think of the, the scene where the snowman walks into that giant icicle uh, in, in, in the, the kids' movie. What's the movie that just came out? What is it? Frozen. Olaf, thank you. Yeah, uh, where he impales himself. That's what, uh, on, on, this is what, what Paul says. He says, those who, who love money fall into a trap and a snare and they pierce themselves with many griefs. Think about that. It's the, the desire to have and to possess and to find our security in what we have won for ourselves by our hard work. That's the danger of the love of money. Money itself is neutral. It's what people do to get it, to wield its power that causes the problem. And so one of the ways in which we demonstrate this is not my master is we give some of it Away. We ought to view all of it as God's given to us for the meeting of our needs, for the betterment of others, for the advancing of his mission. Paul tells the Corinthians to excel in the grace 
of giving, not to earn God's favor, not to purchase it, not to, not to purchase righteousness, but instead to graciously give and to so imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. The churches in the surrounding area were, were gathering money and sending it to Jerusalem because of poverty. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Here's the amazing thing about giving in God's mission is that when a single piece of money, a single dollar goes into the offering plate, it joins up with all the other monies. It connects, and all of that flows. When you think about the, the Christian endeavor, within the Southern Baptist Convention, there's something called the cooperative program, right? And this is that, that when churches give to this large program, they're able to field missionaries and to fund seminaries, the cooperative program is enormous, and they always will, will say, you know, and this is a way in which a, which a smaller church, by the way, we're not a smaller church. We're like a, a, a mid-sized church for the United States. This, the average church is somewhere around 35 people. Think about that. I wish our church was bigger. Our church is big compared to a lot of them. Um, when, when, you, when, you think, when you think about uh, uh, that single church, they say, what can we do? We can join together for mission. These churches, though they had very little, they gave individually, and Paul gathered all that and funneled it and directed it towards Jerusalem in such a way that the poor who were hurting and starving and in pain were blessed. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And this is why there will be no browbeating about giving at the end of this. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They wanted to be involved in the good things that the church was doing, that, that Paul was doing on behalf of these saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge that as he started, as we urge Titus as he started, he should complete among you this act of grace. So, so Titus had come to them and had told them about the offering, and they were like, we want to be part of that. And Titus was like, okay, that's cool. Save up the money. We'll come back and get it. And Paul was like, good job. Get the money and, and, and bring it back, you know, and we'll, we'll send it to where it needs to go. Taking part in the collective effort of using money given by God, being stewards of it and saying, I can use this for God's glory and my joy to help other people. And then Paul says this, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and also in, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. All the things that we work at as Christians, being faithful to speak what's true, being faithful to practice music, being faithful to instruct, being faithful to remain holy, being faithful in all of these areas to share the gospel Paul says this area needs attention as well, that we ought to rule our spirits with regard to our finances. What does Paul tie this to? Does he say, this is good, 
And you ought to think about it. No, he says, this is the example that God gives to us. I say, verse 8 of chapter 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love, but by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. And then he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When you think about opportunity and about using what you have for good, do you think of Jesus? Because Jesus took the opportunity set before him. He alone was holy. He alone could keep the law. He alone was sinless and stainless, and he was in heaven. And he came to satisfy the wrath of God by taking upon human flesh. He became poor. He laid aside the free use of all of his divine rights and became poor and lived as a peasant on the lowest rung of humanity, born in a stable. He became humble and he served and he lived his life in sacrifice to everyone else, doing what he knew was right. He took upon the burden of human sin. He impoverished himself in a second way by taking the pollution of our sin upon himself and he went to the cross. Why? so that we might become rich in righteousness. What did Jesus become rich in? Rich in self-imposed humbling and suffering. He became rich in the possession of our sin. I want to be careful because I, I don't think that he ever, no, I know the Bible says that he never sinned. He never became displeasing because of something that he had done. He took our sin upon himself like a possession and was crushed for it as God poured wrath on him. Think about that. He alone could do this for us. And he was faithful. And we're called to imitate his example. Think about this. From a human perspective, you are infinitely more rich than Jesus ever was. Think about it. He went to the temple, and the, 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 um, the leaders in the temple said to him, uh, hey, you guys are going to pay the temple tax, right? And Peter says, oh, yeah, of course. And then he goes to Jesus, and he's like, hey, we pay the temple tax, right? Because I just told them that we were going to pay the temple tax. Um, that's kind of Peter's mode of operation. Well, then... Uh, Jesus says, well, you know what? We don't actually have to pay the temple tax because like, sons don't pay tax in their father's house. you know. And this is my father's house. But because we don't want to anger them, I, I don't know if that means like, you, well, you said we were going to pay it, so we're going to pay it. I don't think that's it. He's like, we're, just, we're not going to make this an issue. He says, hey. Uh, and he doesn't reach into his pocket. He doesn't say, hey, go to Judas and get some money out of the money bag. One, because there's never anything in it because Judas was always taking everything. Uh, but I think, I think in part because there's nothing there because Jesus lived a life of poverty. He says, hey, 
go throw a line into the water and you'll catch a fish and then in that fish's mouth you're going to find a coin. I'm sure Peter's like, wait, do what? You know, but go and get a coin and then pay the temple taxes back. When Jesus said to pay taxes, borrow. You know, like he had to go fishing. You didn't have the money on it. You had to go get it from a fish. We're infinitely more rich than that, right? My gaslight came on yesterday, and I start playing this little game where I'm like, I know my car, I know how long I can drive. Like, well, I just got to go and take my card and stick it in the machine and fill it up with gas. I can do it. I can. No worries about where that money's coming from. I have it. We're intensely more rich than he is. Maybe this, in part, is a piece of the connection to what he's saying when he says, greater works you'll do than I will. I have nothing. The church is intensely rich. There's a story where um, uh, I believe it's St. Francis was talking with the present reigning pope and uh, in an echo of the story when, when John and Peter are heading into the temple. They see the, the lame man, and the lame man holds out his hand, and he asks for alms, and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I'm singing the song in my head if you know it, such as I have, give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, right? And he went walking and leaping and praising God. If Nancy were here, she'd be singing and clapping, but she's not here. So in an echo of that story, the Pope says to St. Francis, look, look around you. The church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. St. Francis echoed back to him, yes, but we also can't say, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. Maybe a piece of the ineffectiveness of the Western church is that we have been blessed with so much. And we use so much on our passions and our own pursuits, filling up our own need for security, that, that we have tied up all of our money in our own pursuits. We've not guarded the use of those funds, and therefore we are not in a place where we say, here, God, I will stretch myself. I will impoverish myself. I will, I will give away, and I will depend on you to work. Jesus gave all as a good steward of his life. When you look at your resources, when you look at your life, do you view yourself as the owner of them? Are you the possessor or do you view all that is given to you on a routine basis as God's? Some of which is for your family and the future. And some of which is to be given away to his work. Turn it over. If you see your financial life as being a bit of a wreck, if you're, you're looking at what's going on in your life and you're saying, I am not in control, God is going to work it out, and yet you're not planning for certain things, you're not 
paying off debts, you're not uh, planning for the future, I'd say this, take up responsibility. John Wesley is the one who said that he earned as much as he could so he could save as much as he could so he could give as much as he could away. And that was his encouragement to every Christian. We're to use what we have wisely. We're to give of our resources. And we should partner with God and with the church in giving. When you give, you're joining in God's great work, living by faith first, but also fueling the work of world missions. There are those who say that if the American church would give 10% of their income, that the church would have sufficient money to meet the budgets of every missions agency in the world, and that they could solve most of the social problems that we're facing in this country. The resources are just not coming in. When you give, you're joining in God's great work. You're saying that you trust him and the work that he's doing, and you are stepping out in faith. A couple other areas. Be careful how you are yoked. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, when he's talking about what he can eat and, and, and certain kinds of behaviors, he's saying all things are lawful. And then he says, but not all things are helpful. The question that we ought to ask when we consider any behavior is, is this helpful to my spiritual growth? He echoes that by saying all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things build the church. Not all things are good. Look, something might be permissible, but when other people see it, when other people hear of it, they are hurt or confused, and so you need to be careful to build up others. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so the encouragement here in terms of stewardship is to be a good steward of your appetites. Protect your appetites. Guard them. I believe this is one of the great American sins. And it's not just that we pile up cash and preserve it or that we, we do what we want. It's that we have an intense impatience that comes because we are so used to everything around us working, the expectation that, that things will work in a certain way. We say things like, why is there so much traffic all the time? Right? Why don't they, they've got 26 places for people to check out here at Walmart. Like, why are there only three places open? Like, ugh, I had to wait behind three people. The one lady had a full cart of stuff and I only had two things. Right? Like, how do you learn patience other than waiting for that lady? And listen, if you were from New Jersey, you're used to efficiency. They don't talk to you in the checkout line. They're like, bip, 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 you know? They don't bag your stuff for you either. They're like, are your arms broken? Like, load that stuff up. <laughs> when we were in South Carolina, Nancy went to the Piggly Wiggly, and she was loading her groceries, and they were like, are you looking for a job? Because <laughs> we do that here for you, right? You know, no, she's just like, no, I want to get out of here. Like, I want to go home. I'm not talking, lady's like, I've, I've never tried this. Is this good? Nancy's like, scan that, you know? <laughs> and then we'll talk about it. 
Think about it. Ten years ago, you, you, you probably didn't even have Wi-Fi, and now we're like, why isn't the Wi-Fi working? I can't check my email. That's a blessing, not a curse. You know? Think about it. The whole of life is a stewardship, and what we need to guard is our internal attitudes, and we need to see the impatience or the anger or the frustration growing in us, and we need to say, I need to guide that and redirect it. And I need to, I need to make sure that I am, I am focusing on engaging behaviors that, that build up and that are helpful and profitable. This moves into the next area. It actually shows up earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where we're told to be careful how we use our body. Paul says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. All things are lawful. He's talking here about eating, you know, that there are no things which are off limits anymore. And thank you, Jesus, for that. I was talking to a, a Christian whose conviction is that the Bible bans shellfish and therefore he shouldn't eat it. He's like, this is my conviction. I'm like, good for you and more for me. <laughs> you know, you can go. Yeah, I'm, you're fine. You want to go in front of me on the line for shrimp? That's totally cool. Because I know you're not going to take it, and I am going to eat it and enjoy it for the glory of God. <laughs> right? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, Paul says here. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. I don't know if you've ever tried to, like, restrain your eating, right? You know what's hard? The first couple days are hard. And once you're like three or four days into it, the appetite starts to change. The body's like, oh, you're not going to give me something to eat every single time I think about it? Every single time I'm like, give me food, give me sugar, give me, you know, your, your, your attitude changes. Your appetite changes. We're to see food as a tool. Thank you to God for not just giving us bland substance numbers one, two, and three to live on. Instead, he created a world full of flavors that are delightful. Food is meant for the stomach, we're told, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The point here is that we're not, we're not created to serve our appetite. We're created with an appetite because that's a healthy and a good thing. We need to make sure that we're not dominated by it. And so protect your appetites. One of your greatest allies in your mission in glorifying and knowing God is your body. Right? Now listen, you might be like, he's preaching at me. I'm preaching at me right now. All right? I, I, I love an egg sandwich at Dunkin'. I love a medium coffee with cream and two sugars, and that is not good. You know what else isn't good, but it's so good, is a medium coffee with, with cream and two sugars and two sour cream donuts. Love it. So easy to say, so easy to order. They've got the app, I just scan it, and, and quite honestly, I'm, I'm probably not even out of the parking lot until all I need to worry about is my coffee. That's how fast our appetites run. We need to guard. Because we've been given a certain amount of time. I'm probably not going to get to my last point. That's fine. We'll come back to it. We've been given a certain amount of time on this earth, a certain number of moments. And we ought not say, oh, well, you know, we can eat and do whatever we want and live any way we want because God's predestined, you know, that I don't have those minutes. Like, don't do the math that way. That's weird. 
Instead, Paul says, you know, if I go to be with Christ, that's a victory. But if I stay here and remain, that means fruitful labor. And Paul stayed and remained. Because the Christian life is not to pursue martyrdom or to pursue an early exit. Instead, it's to maximize life, not because of fear of death, but because of the opportunity to be a good steward of the time we've been given. Live as long as you can, remain as healthy as you can, to maximize every moment that you can. Maybe this is an area in which you have not been a good steward. Take control. Turn over how many days to the Lord. That's his business. But take control of your time and then use it wisely. Another area, and this is what we'll finish on, is that the body, Paul goes on to say, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What we do with our minds, this includes our eyes and our appetites, and then our physical frame ought to glorify God. God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. We, when we are raised, are made one with the Lord. We are united with him. This is verse 17. And so we ought to know what is said in these intervening passages, that when we are involved in, in sexual immorality, what we're doing is we are connecting unrighteous behavior, unrighteous appetites, unrighteous actions we are, we are introducing them into our lives, and we are compromising our own purity. We're using our body improperly. We can't stain or defile the Lord, but we can stain and defile ourselves. Paul says here in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. The sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Think about the transition. The Spirit of God came and lived in the physical temple, and the people would say, we're going to go to the temple and worship God. And then Jesus came, and he said, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they're like, don't you be touching our temple. And he's like, I'm not talking about that temple, I'm talking about my body. He was, the, he was full of the spirit. He was, he was the sacrifice. And when the temple, when the sacrifice went to the cross, what happened? The curtain was torn. And what happened then? The spirit came out and he dwells in every believer now. And the temple is no longer a place in Jerusalem that we ought to point to and pray. The temple is us. We are being built into his temple. And so our purity and good stewardship of the spirit within us ought to be important to us. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Protect your purity in the way that is most applicable to you. If you're single, remain pure. If you are married, do not covet, do not cheat, do not go outside, do not look outside. Stay pure. 
as an act of good stewardship and devotion to the Lord. Amen. The whole of life is a stewardship. Turn over control of any of those areas in which the Lord does not already own your life. You don't act or think that he owns it, but he does. And listen, I'm speaking from experience. As a young man, I realized that when you give God the deed to your heart, to your life, when you say, I surrender control, there are many times where he's like, and now I want to remodel that room. And you're like, oh, no, not that room. Remodel the living room. That's where the problems are. And he's like, nope, I am coming in there. And he will knock and pound and berate until you open that door because that is the most essential area. So wherever we have touched this morning, an area where you still own and you are not being a steward, I encourage you this, turn it over. And then as you see the need for certain actions in your life, I encourage you to take it up and use every opportunity wisely. Be careful how you use what's been entrusted to you. It is all, whatever it is, whether you eat or drink, it is all to be used for the glory of God. And I believe this, that when we devote and use our lives to God's glory, that is when we will find the greatest joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for the, the, the time and the space to share this word. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. One, that, that the sense of condemnation would be swept away, that conviction would remain, but that, that condemnation that crushes would go away. We struggle we struggle with insecurity related to money. We struggle with the need to control our lives. We struggle with the need to have more. We struggle with our physical appetites and with the appetites of attitude, of impatience, and of judgment. We struggle with our, our physical appetites and we struggle with our, with our physical desires. And so I just pray for grace and empowerment. I pray that you would help us to see that on the other side of stewardship is joy. May we imitate your example and use every moment to the best of our ability for your glory that we might live in a way that pleases you, that honors you, that shows you as our greatest treasure, that shows that these things are not our greatest treasure and our joy. And in so doing, Father, would you fuel our joy? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together. Amen.